Amen. As you grab a seat, do not turn to Joshua today. Uh, we're going to go to Matthew. Uh, so if, you, if, if you're still getting acquainted around your Bible, Matthew's the first uh, book of the New Testament. Uh, it's, I would say it's halfway in there, but it's really more like uh, three-quarters of the way towards the back of your Bible. Uh, today, uh, we are kicking off uh, a new book, and, and uh, first of all, I just want to congratulate you or, or exhort you for being here. I know it's, uh, you could be out in the woods trying to tag out, and uh, you're, you're here instead and giving yourself a little shorter window this afternoon. So, uh, and, I, I, and as important as that is, I think we also recognize that by being here, we're making a statement about where our priority lies first and foremost, right? Uh, that the, 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 nothing else really matters if we're not right with the Lord first. Um, but today we're beginning with the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, coincidentally, this first four to five weeks that we're going to be walking in Matthew line up pretty well with our slow, that's rapid march towards Christmas. Uh, and so you're going you know, to see the kind of kind of tails together. But then uh, I was mapping it out. I'm not going to tell you how long we're going to be in Matthew because I don't know. Uh, but I do know it's going to be longer than a minute. Uh, and so today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Uh, and just to give you a quick uh, fire hose of who Matthew is and why he is writing his gospel, that'll kind of help frame as we walk through how it all flows together. Uh, so Matthew is one of four Gospels, and he's one of three of what we call synoptic Gospels. And you don't have to remember that. All it means is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are very similar in their setup, but they're different biographical views of Jesus. And then John is another biographical view of Jesus, but when you place it next to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's completely different in its structure and in the way that it's set up. Uh, so Matthew is, uh, if you're wondering who this guy Matthew is and why he has the ability or the authority to write about who Jesus is, Matthew is one of the 12 uh, of Jesus' original uh, uh, disciples. Uh, he was a tax collector before he was a follower of Jesus. And he writes his gospel uh, in, the, in the mid to late 50s, 80s to the early 60s. And so he's writing 25 to 30 years after Jesus' ascension back into heaven. Um, and he's writing primarily, and, and, we'll, and it, it, it's still valid for you and for me, but the flair of his gospel is it's geared towards uh, more Jewish background believers. And so as we walk through Matthew, one of the things that we'll see, and, and we'll go, oh, that makes sense, especially in these first five weeks, is in almost every passage in the first two chapters of Matthew, he relates it to this fulfilled the scripture. And he's telling so, so it's like red flags going off for a Jewish background person. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things that they know about in the Old Testament. And now they are seeing the fullness of God's plan of salvation coming in Jesus. And so uh, we're going to start off Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, probably an often read passage of Scripture around Christmas season, but seldom preached, and you're going to figure that out why in just a minute. Uh, and, I, and I hired a guest reader. Who wants to do it today? No? Dan, I love you. You would do it. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. You want to shout it out? 
And I'll cap it off for you. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Uh, Anybody else want to reread it for us? (laughs) Dan, Dan, take a second stab at it. Uh, So you go, what in the world? How are we going to spend time talking about all of those names. Uh, and really, what the, Matthew is pointing out, and what we're going to talk about, is he's giving the bloodline, right, of Jesus. And, and he ties it, verse 1 is kind of the linchpin for the whole thing. He's tying Jesus to David and to Abraham. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you were to read straight through, and you started your Bible reading in Genesis, and you had never read anything else, in all of Scripture, and you were reading straight through, if you got to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, you would recognize two out of those three names. You would recognize Abraham, and you would recognize David. Uh, And you would recognize them as being uh, notable people in the Old Testament, but you would also, hopefully you would remember that both of these guys, David and Abraham, were the representative heads of two covenants that God made with them. So for Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. So if you think about this, Matthew just gave a, a laundry list of names that tie you from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of the Old Testament. Telling you how this all, like why, why is all of this record given? Why is it here? But in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham, and we've talked about this a lot in Joshua, because he gave him uh, three promises, or a promise that had three components to it. One is that he would give him offspring, and not just one offspring, but he would give him descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky, right? And then the second one is that he would give them the land of Canaan, the land of promise to dwell in, which is where, when we've been walking through Joshua, it has all been about God's fulfilling his promise to Abraham to give them the land that he had promised after 400 years of waiting. And then he also promised Abraham that through him and through his descendants, all nations would be blessed, right? So whoever blesses Abraham will be blessed. Whoever curses Abraham will be cursed. And, and so and, and an interesting thing right here, Matthew is tying Jesus into this covenant head in Abraham. What's interesting about this is that every Israelite would have been able to say, I'm a son of Abraham. Right? That's true of any and every Israelite throughout all of the Old Testament, as far as those that were born into the tribes of Israel. Not necessarily true of, uh, in the natural sense of people like Rahab or of Ruth who come in by adoption into the family, but it is true of every single person born in, of the Israelites. So if you were to give any other Israelites genealogy in the first century, they would all begin with Abraham. I, this is where we take, like, this is the, the head of the family tree, right? Like, or the root of the family tree before it branches out in hundreds of different directions. But not every Israelite could say that they were a son of David. Because David, if you, if you track this in, in the genealogy, in, in verse 2 it says, Jacob became the father of Judah and his brothers. Well, Judah is only one of the twelve brothers, Right? He's only one of 12 tribes of Israel. but he, So this is where the first little offshoot of the branch comes. So he comes from, David is out of the tribe of Judah. And then you track this to verse 6. Who is David? David is 
the king. He's the second king of Israel. He follows King Saul. Uh, Saul had the kingdom ripped away from him because he refused to follow the Lord in obedience. That's found in 1 Samuel. And then, uh, but God handpicks David to be the second king of Israel. And I want you to turn really quickly just to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to see this promise that God gives to David that becomes really important for us in understanding why it matters that Matthew frames his genealogy this way. Why, does, why, why is it so important for Matthew to say, Jesus is a son of David. And then later on in Matthew's gospel, why is it important that people come up to Jesus saying, son of David? Like they're crying out, son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, heal us. Like why is that important language as we move forward? And it hinges out of this promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12. And the context of this, context is kind of important. David has been king for a while. He's, he's a warrior king, and he asks God that he would have the privilege of building a temple for the Lord. And initially, the Lord says, go ahead. But then that same night, God speaks to a prophet named Nathan and says, I want you to relay this message to David. And basically, he says, David, you're not allowed to build a temple for me because you got a lot of blood on your hands. But here's what I'm going to do, right? He says, starting in verse 12, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So we're going to stop right there before we read verse 16. What he, this is kind of a profound promise if you think about it. David is following a king who just had the kingdom ripped away from him. David is getting close to or looking forward to the day when he dies. Will the kingdom pass to his children or will it get snatched and taken to another? And so God, in the immediate sense, he's promising, David, your son will sit on the throne. We see that as we walk through the Old Testament. This happens in Solomon. Solomon is is the son of Uriah the Hittite found in Matthew's genealogy. And he's the one who builds a temple for the Lord. Up to that point, the Lord dwelt in a tabernacle all the way back from his time in the wilderness with the people of Israel. And so in an immediate sense, this is fulfilled. God keeps his promise. Solomon sits on the throne. But then in verse 16, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So not just will your next son sit on the throne, but this promise is given to David that the kingdom will be established, his kingdom will be established, and it will never fade away. And you go, that sounds, that sounds like a really good promise. Who would like that promise? You're going to be king, and, and there's going to be a kingdom in your name forever and ever and ever. Sounds really good. Now, the problem is, when Matthew is writing about the birth of Jesus and when Jesus is born, the problem is that there is no king in Israel. Not just, like, there's no king in the line of David sitting on the throne when Jesus is born. And I have a timeline up here for you, because this is one of my favorite things. So if you look, you have your Bible, it says Gospel of Matthew. 
I'm going to zoom in on that in just a second because I know that's ridiculous, right? Like, you can't see that. My favorite little spot in the Bible might be this page right here. The one that says New Testament, and it's, or it's a blank page. Because oftentimes when we read, when we finish Malachi and we keep reading, it's like we see it as seamless. But the reality is from Malachi to when Jesus is born, there's about a 400 to 420 year period of prophetic silence where God is not speaking to the people of Israel through his prophets. Like the last thing that he has told them in Malachi is that he would send a messenger to prepare before the coming of the day of the Lord. And then... No more word of the Lord shared in a corporate way for the people of Israel. That doesn't mean that God's not active, which is why I want to share this little, this little snapshot for you. So, Ali, go back just one second. So on this, this is like the whole like, timeline of Scripture in one shot. You can't see it really great. Uh, it's, it, I, I borrowed this from the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas, in the Dallas area. They have it laid out for you. So this is, this is Moses, this is the judges, Saul, David, and all that. So now we're just going to condense that in. So zoom in there. Uh, so in 722, on the far right of your screen, far left of your screen, can't get my directions right, my right, your left, 722, if you're reading in the Old Testament, this lines up with when the Assyrians came and they took the northern ten tribes of the people of Israel into captivity. So after Solomon, David's son, died, the kingdom was split into two. The southern kingdom, Judah, where the offspring of David reigned, and then the northern kingdom that began to be ruled by other kings who were also Israelites, but they weren't sons of David. So in 722, they get carried off into captivity. In 586, if you just take another step over there, it says Judah's exile to Babylon. This is uh, lining up with when the other, the southern kingdom, the kingdom ruled by David and his offspring, they get carried into captivity. And it would be really important for us to stop really quick and go, why were they carried into captivity? If God had made a promise to give them land and he promised to establish David's throne forever, why would he allow them to be carried off to a foreign place? And the answer is really simple because most of the Old Testament and all of, most of all of the prophets revolve around this. The people of Israel, even though they were designed to be God's light unto the nations and to respond and to relate rightly to the Lord, instead of following the Lord with their whole heart, which is what we've been talking about in all of the book of Joshua, if you've been with us for the last several months, right? That it all hinges on, if you follow me, if you keep my covenant, you stay in the land. But as soon as you go after all of the other gods, like all of the other peoples of of which I have driven out in front of you, then I'm going to drive you out of it as well. So what that tells us, those two little dots on the map, they remind us in a stark way, at a specific time, God said, that's enough. You have been running after other gods long enough, and God used the nations of Assyria and Babylon to bring judgment on his people and to carry them into captivity. During this time frame is where you get the most, like some of those famous promises in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I have plans for your future, plans to bless you and to prosper you. It relates to the people are in captivity in Babylon and God is telling them, I'm going to bring you back in 70 years. So in 538, uh, that begins, they become, begin to be allowed to move back to the place that God had given them. And what this lines up with at the same time, it's not on this map. But in 580, uh, so 587, the Babylonians capture Israel. In 539, and this lines up, have you ever heard of the name King Cyrus, right? Book of Ruth, Nehemiah, Ezra. King Cyrus is part of the Medo-Persian Empire. 
So the Medo-Persians come and they push away or take over all of the Babylonians' empire. So you have the Assyrians that were really big, the Babylonians conquer them. The Babylonians are huge and the Medo-Persians come and conquer them. The next year, King Cyrus starts to allow the people of Israel to move back to Jerusalem. That's why you have Nehemiah and Ezra talking about the rebuilding of the walls. They are rebuilding the walls because they were torn down when the people were carried off into captivity. Okay, You keep walking through this. In in 332, these Medo-Persians, huge empire, is conquered by the Greeks. That happens in this this blank page period of time. 332, under Alexander the Great... Most of the known world is conquered and brought under his control. In 327, so just five years later, Alexander the Great dies, and two of his generals split up his territory. Now, if you're paying attention really closely, you could go back and read Daniel, and you remember the the vision that Daniel has about the statue? This lines up with the, the, the vision that God gives to Daniel to understand the future events that are happening in the world. And then in 320... Uh, one of those uh, generals uh, that is reigning out of Egypt annexes Israel, gives them back some of their freedom, and yet there is still, in all of this time, there is no king in Israel. When they go and resettle the land, if you're looking at Matthew's um, genealogy, uh, Zerubbabel, the, the son of Shealtiel, he's the governor, but he's not the king. There is no king reigning in this period. There is no son of David sitting on the throne. In 175 AD, so or in BC, 175, so in this intertestamental period, there's no dots on the map for these couple of things. But there's a guy named Antiochus IV, who in 167 defiles the temple, goes and, and slaughters a pig inside of the temple. Defiles the temple. Right, which causes a Jewish uprising and revolt led by the Maccabees. So if you ever wonder, where does Hanukkah come from? Hanukkah originates in this in-between phase where the Maccabees wage a revolt and, and seize control of Israel again, restoring the right worship in the temple. That happens in 164. They establish Hanukkah, which is still right around this time of the year, observed by Jewish people to this day, commemorating the restoration of Israel in this time period where somebody had gone in and defiled the nation. So from 142 to 63 BC, I know I'm throwing dates at you. If you're writing them down, that's fine. If you're not, that's okay. I'm just helping you understand what is happening in this period. There's freedom, but they're under kind of the Maccabean rule. There's still not a son of David sitting on the throne. In 63 BC, under one of his generals, Julius Caesar's Rome conquers Israel, and now they are back under foreign rule, which is the case until 320 AD. So for another 400 years, Israel will be under Roman control. And in 40 BC, under Roman rule and by Roman decree, Herod the Great is made to be the vassal or the king over Jerusalem. And the thing about, that's interesting about Herod is Herod is, is what's called, he's an Edomian, which means he's from Edom, which means he is, his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather his is Esau instead of Jacob, and his mom is Jewish. So what you have when Matthew is writing his genealogy in Jerusalem at the time where Jesus is born, you have an illegitimate king sitting on the throne. After 700 years of no king sitting on the throne. 
586 years. So Matthew's gospel is showing this Jesus, the son of Abraham, is the right son of David. Tying him not just to Abraham and those promises, but he is the son of David who has come to sit on a throne. Now, you go, that sounds really good. As we walk through the gospel of Matthew, what we will see is probably in the same way that you and I, if we were to read this for the very first time and we were to understand that in its context, we would expect Jesus to, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, to be sitting on a throne in Jerusalem inside of a a recently conquered Jerusalem free of Roman oppression. Right, That, That is what the people are expecting. They're expecting a king. There's this expectation and a longing for this king who will reestablish the right throne of David, who will kick out all foreign oppressors. Like, that's all they have known for 586 years is foreign rule and this grappling over power. And there's a longing and an expectation that God will make all of this right when he sends a son of David to sit on the throne. So having that in mind, you can see when we get down the road in Matthew, we're going to go, oh, I can see how they got that wrong. I can see how they misread what they expected Jesus to do as king. But it's also interesting that when you come to Matthew's genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it's the very first mention of Jesus by name in all of Scripture. But it is not the very first mention of who he is or what he will do in Scripture. Up to this point, though, there's an expectation, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that Adam and Eve one day will have a child who will conquer the serpent who deceived them from the very beginning. There's this thread throughout all of Scripture, this longing for the right deliverer, the right savior, the right king who will set his people free. And that is the context of where we get Matthew chapter 1 and why Matthew starts his gospel with this strange reading of a bunch of different names. So I want to give you just three quick, they're not exhaustive, but three quick takeaways of why this genealogy matters. So one thing it helps is for us to understand the context in which Jesus was born. He was born into a chaotic geopolitical mess, right? But the first thing that we want to to take away out of the genealogy, if you were to read through this and, and you go through and you see all of the strange names again, many of which you can go back and read about in the Old Testament, The first thing is a reminder that God uses ordinary people in his plan and his purpose. There is not a single person listed outside of Jesus in these verses that is not a normal person, not an ordinary person. There is not a single person that you could go back and look at their their account in the Old Testament and go, that person was perfect. All of them were messed up. Some of them were exceedingly messed up. And yet through ordinary people, God is a accomplishing throughout all of the pages of the Old Testament. For every disappointment, God is accomplishing his purpose. There's no perfect people in the family tree of Jesus, outside of Jesus. Like, wow, you know, like, he really messed up the, 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 the model in a positive way. But notice that God faithfully works through ordinary people that are messed up. You might very well be paralyzed from obedience to faith in God because you think, I'm not good enough. There's no way that he could use me with all my warts, my bumps, my, like, all the things that I have messed up. You might be paralyzed to a place that is going like, I'm just glad to be here. 
I'm just, I'm just glad that I, for some reason, I guess he offers salvation th- to me. But the, the, the reminders throughout all the scriptures, apart from Jesus, there's not a single pers- perfect person. And yet through imperfect people, God accomplishes his purposes. You think about Abraham, the son of, he always says the son of Abraham. Think of some of Abraham's colossal mistakes. Two different times he, he like, he shilled out his wife and going like, just tell him you're my sister. And he was like going to give away the wife to whom the promise was said. This was like through Sarah. She's going to bear a son. And, and two times to save his own neck, he goes, take my wife. That's, that's not really glamorous, glowing, like, you know, a Yelp review of Abraham. Solid guy. Turns on his wife every chance he gets. Right? Like, pff, not great. He and Sarah lose sight of how God could possibly accomplish his purpose. And so they have, they have a son through her servant, Hagar, in order to try to help God do what he said he would do. Like, God needs a little nudge and a little bit of help because we're old and there's no way we could have a child. Right? And, and, and God redirects and says, that's not, that's not how this child is going to That's not how it's going to work. Not a perfect person. You think of David... For all of the good things he's done and for being called a man after God's own heart, his biggest mistakes would be disqualifying for anybody in politics or in church leadership today. You think about a guy who steals somebody else's wife, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then has the guy murdered. How many of you want that guy as your pastor? Really good guy except he steals people's wives. Kind of weird thing. But really good character. You might be one of his mighty men, but if he decides he likes your wife, he might kill you. Like that's, that's maybe one of the most scandalous things is Uriah is listed as one of the mighty men of David who goes into battle with David. It's not, it's not just some random guy out on the outskirts. It's a guy who had been through the trenches of warfare with him. God uses imperfect people. It's, it's not to go, oh, like David is a scumbag and we shouldn't learn anything from him. What we learn is that God is really, really good at carving a straight line with crooked sticks. Uh, he does what he, only he can do through people who could never do it on their own. So if this morning you're on, there's no way that God could use me. If you read through some of these people and you go, if God could use them, could he not use you too? If you fast forward this into the New Testament, the guy who is writing this gospel is a tax collector who takes advantage of his own people to carve out a fortune and gaining the pleasure of the Romans and the hatred of his own people. And yet called to follow Jesus and leaves it all behind. And when, and when he comes to follow Jesus, we're going to see this later in his gospel. When he comes to follow Jesus, he invites all of the other tax collectors and sinners to join him at his house. And the Pharisees, the religious people, get mad at Jesus for eating with this guy and his friends. And now he is writing and saying, let me tell you about how good this Savior is. God uses imperfect people. Like We are really good at looking at our story and going, these are all the reasons why God would never or could never or should never use me. That is not to say, let's sin so that God's grace might be amplified, in the words of Paul in Romans. But it is to say that your screwed-upness is unable to thwart God's goodness and faithfulness. That's one of my favorite things I've seen. I don't know if you've seen it going around on the internet, but it says, like, when God called you to salvation, he took into account your stupidity. He knew, like, he knew what he was getting in us, people. 
He knew. And He still chose you. Knowing all of your junk intimately in a way that no one else does. He knows everything inwardly, outwardly. He knows your whole past. It's laid out before Him. And He still chooses to express His love and salvation to imperfect people. And He accomplishes His purpose through them. It's incredible. So if, if you leave the Scriptures, if you leave reading about Jesus and you leave discouraged going, this guy would never take me. This, this is a God who's too good for me. Well, for one, He is a God who is too good for you. He's holy and He's perfect and He's righteous and He's just in a way that you and I could never be. And yet, He chooses people like you and me. Not because of how good we are, but because of how amazingly great He is. God's, so first of all, we learned God's use of ordinary people in accomplishing his purposes. The second thing, and when you look at the, if you go back to the timeline for just a minute, Allie, and you look at, go to the second one for me. There you go. That intertestamental period, I don't know what color that is, blue, purple, whatever color that is. Huh? Shut up. <laughs> Can I say that from here? It's not black. Zach, you made me say shut up from the pulpit. Man, <laughs> taking advantage of a, a handicapped person. It's horrible. That blue line. It's blue. The line is blue. It's easy to look at that, or it's easy to switch from Old Testament to New Testament and think that that happened overnight. What I want you to see in this and what you see in Matthew's genealogy is that when all seems lost, God is working. When it all seems like it is not going to work out, like God is working. 400 years, prophetic silence. The people haven't heard a corporate word from the Lord from a prophet in 400 years, at least not recorded for us in an ongoing way. Their situation is, There is no king, at least not a right one. They really don't have the inheritance in the way that they thought they ought to because they're under Roman rule. Then there's no end in sight. For 586 years, somebody else has been ruling them. No king, no inheritance, no end in sight. From foreign oppressor to foreign oppressor. This list these off. Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Egypt, Rome. The revolving door of who owns them, who controls them, who dictates what happens where they live. And yet in all of that, God is at work. You see that in the genealogy that, that he, in, in all of these, he's, he's bringing a line through whom the Christ or the Messiah Jesus will be revealed. But not only that, what, what is incredible about this period, when you begin to read it in light of the rest of the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, is that because of the Greeks, in about 330, you have a universal language and almost a universal culture across most of the known world. Everybody speaks Greek because it's the language that everybody speaks for business and commerce. 
Everyone in the known world. You, you, you imagine this. This is kind of like how people want to learn English today. It's the, the language of business, right? In that day, it was Greek. There was a common language so that people could talk to anybody anywhere. They just pop in and you know Greek. I know Greek. What's interesting about that is, is, is when you look at that in light of, of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the disciples, the, the 120 in the upper room are filled with the Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues, like it's interesting that, that they're speaking to Hebrews or Jews that are scattered throughout the known world coming back to Jerusalem for a festival, and they're hearing in Greek, but they're also hearing in the languages that they live because it's the, Greek is the universal language, but they're also learning and speaking all of the languages to which they had been dispersed under Babylon and Assyria. So during Babylon and Assyria as well, when the people, got, the people of Israel got dispersed throughout, not all of them came back to Israel in 539. A bunch of them stayed in all of these little pockets, and they started what are called synagogues. They started synagogues so they could continue to teach the law away from the temple, so they could continue to observe the Old Testament law wherever they lived. Which is interesting because when Paul pops up as the first missionary, when he goes to a new city, where does he always go first? The synagogue. Well, why are people in synagogues? Because 600 years earlier, they had been carried off into captivity, scattered around all of the known world. And it spreads the gospel so rapidly. The Romans, what did they bring to the table? They brought in a universal citizenship. If you were born there, anywhere in their territory, you were a Roman citizen. They brought in a road system that is still, like, they build better roads than we do, still. They're still standing up to time. Ease of, of travel. You could get anywhere because of the Roman system of travel. Still speaking Greek. Having a citizenship, you see that Paul, later in the book of Acts, he'll appeal to his citizenship in order to gain the opportunity to share the gospel. What I'm saying is, in this period of silence, where it seems like all is lost... God is paving the way not just for Jesus to be born, but for Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and the news of it to spread rapidly in a way that only God could accomplish. No one, if you told them in 722 when they were being carried off into captivity, or in 586 when they were being carried off into captivity, if you had told them, hey, 500 years from now, God's going to use this in a way that would blow your mind. You know what they would probably say? I don't care. This stinks. For 400 years, waiting with no end in sight, and yet the whole time, God orchestrating and laying a framework for the gospel to be spread rapidly across the known world. Maybe one of the things that, that, that would help you to hear this morning is that, that God is never late. How many of you like to wait? It's weird, no hands are raised. Let me rephrase that. How many of you love to wait for anything? I was thinking about this, getting ready for today. Do you know how often the idea of waiting pops up in Scripture? Waiting is woven through God's activity all throughout. Think about in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was already getting up in age, and he was promised that he would have a son, and it didn't happen for another 30 years. 30 years waiting. 
to the place where only God could get the credit for it because Sarah was beyond the age of childbearing. It shows up when Isaac prays for his wife Rebecca to bear a child, which speaks to the fact that she had been unable to bear a child, which means they were waiting and waiting. God sends his people to Egypt for 400 years, waiting. We said this in Joshua to, to just think back at what was happening in the United States 400 years ago. And there's not, not, I mean, there's, there's some stuff, but not in the sense of what we think about. What if you took that even farther in this period of waiting for the Messiah to come? 586 years. That sounds really simple to say on this side of things, doesn't it? That's just 586 years. What, what is 586 years from now? The year 2,500-something, 2,600-something. I can't even imagine. We don't like to wait, and yet God is never late. He's always at work, faithfully doing what only he can do. So when all seems lost, remember God's at work. You, don't, you, may, you will not know how when you're waiting. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know what God is doing. You're not supposed to. But when he acts and when he starts to bring it all together, you go, oh, you know, that makes sense in the rear view. In the present, it makes zero sense. When you finally get in to see the doctor, you're like, oh, this, is, this was a good visit. In the waiting room, you're like, nothing good can come of this. So then the third thing that I would encourage you in this is that it, First thing I would say is the third point. So God is faithful. But because God is faithful, say act in accordance with his faithfulness while you wait. I want to take you to second we're going to finish up in Second Peter chapter three. I think of this in this uh, in this idea of waiting. In Second Peter chapter three, Peter is writing down the road, he is writing to those that are like you and I, um, we are waiting on the return of Jesus, not on the first coming of him, but on his return. And there are people that Peter is writing to, uh, that there are people that are, are telling them that their waiting is in vain. Like, he's not coming back. What, like, well, what are you doing waiting for the return of Jesus? And it's kind of interesting, uh, he starts with, in verse 8, he says, Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But here's what I want you to hear. So he's saying the, the Lord is coming. He's not slow, as some people think slow is. Time does not matter to him. Those 586 years, like God is not going, ha, 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 this is so long. Like it, it, it is immaterial to him which is hard for us to wrap our heads around because everything we do is wrapped around time. But then notice this, he says, the day of the Lord will come, and he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? 
in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So I want you to hang on to that, that question, though, in verse 11. What, if, if this is the case, if Jesus is coming back, you don't know when, what sort of people ought you to be while you wait? And I, I'm going to finish reading the passage in a minute, but I want to make a statement. I want you to hear the whole thing and not just the first part. Okay, because if you take away just the first part, you're going to be really angry at me. First thing I want to say, in light of this, and I'm going to clarify it with the second line, okay? So hang with me. Don't waste your life waiting for Jesus' return. Let me say that again. Don't waste your life waiting for Jesus' return. In the sense of waiting for Jesus' return, sitting on your, hand, on your hands in a chair going, Jesus is coming back, none of this matters. Don't waste your life doing that. If Jesus is coming back, what sort of people ought you to be in the meantime? He says, cultivating holiness and godliness. So therefore, beloved, verse 14, since you are waiting for these, he doesn't just say just wait absentmindedly without anything to do. He says, wait for these, be diligent to be found by him when he returns without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. The patience of the Lord, he equates with salvation and repentance. He is surely going to return, but he delays his coming so that more people will experience salvation in his name. So it would be ridiculous for us as his followers to waste our life waiting on his return without action. To just twiddle our thumbs and say, Jesus is coming, so come Lord Jesus, we're ready. In the waiting, we are to be acting, following diligently. Living lives, cultivating faithfulness, steadfastness, diligence, holiness, godliness, whether he returns today, tomorrow, or a hundred years from now. From this moment, moving forward, be faithful. We're going to see that play out in some of Jesus' parables when he talks about, you know, the owner of a field going away and leaving people as stewards of it. How do you want to be found when the master returns? Diligently working with what he has given you. Or sitting on it going, I knew you were coming back. And he said, it would have been better for you to just put it at interest than to just sit on it and do nothing. In the waiting, he is working. So in the waiting, be faithful following. Trust him today. Trust involves following. 